Anthony Spilatro, also known as Tough Guy or The Ant, had a nickname meant to invoke fear. But some said he was a loving husband and dedicated father. The image of Tony being polite, uh, caring, uh, family man, benevolent, that's bullshit. In fact, Tony Spilatro was suspected by the FBI for over 20 murders. Tony Spilatro was a cold-blooded killer. As Las Vegas enforcer for the Chicago Mafia, Spilatro hit anyone his bosses wanted taken care of, anytime, any place. I think he got pleasure out of uh, harming people. Uh, he hung a man on a meat hook. For years, the authorities tried to lock him up, but he bought policemen, owned judges, and shot witnesses. To find that uh, Spilatro was going to be released back onto the street, it was somewhat devastating. Corruption inside the Las Vegas Police Department helped Spilatro get away with murder and stay out of jail for over 20 years. Until there was a new sheriff in town. And the mob no longer had his back. Anthony John Spilatro, the Las Vegas enforcer, was a notorious mafia hitman whose career was ended not by his enemies, but by his friends. This is Mafia. On May 15, 1962, two men and a woman were found shot dead in a car in Chicago. This wasn't big news. Gangsters killing other gangsters was common enough in the Windy City. For the police, it was routine. But for the mob, it was anything but. This hit hadn't been authorized by the boss of the Chicago Mafia, Sam Giancana. The dead men were well-connected, still in good favor, and should have been off-limits. Leone J. Flossi is a former FBI special agent from Chicago. Violence has uh, always been uh, a part of criminal activity. Uh, and with organized crime, uh, the violence is organized and controlled. Uh, they have very strict rules and regulations with regard to uh, using violence to enforce their edicts, but uh, nonetheless, violence is very uh, a very big part of it. Uh, a soldier has a beef or an argument with someone, he can't take it upon himself to punish that individual uh, with something like killing him without getting uh, a, uh, approval from his bosses. Uh, and, and that's uh, just an effort to establish order and discipline in, in, in the outfit so that they, they can control uh, the level of violence so it doesn't get beyond a level that will cause law enforcement or the public to become come outraged. But someone had broken these rules, and now they needed to be found and punished. For this job, the Chicago Mafia bosses turned to a young hoodlum who had a reputation for extreme violence. At 25, he was already on the mob's radar. He'd befriended many of the gangsters and had 14 arrests to his name. So five-foot-five Tony Spilatro was tasked to find out what had happened and dole out the proper punishment. 
Through a childhood friend, Frank Collada, Spalaccio learned that the two dead gangsters had beaten up a young mob associate. Collada also revealed that he'd supplied the guns for the killing, but hadn't been at the scene. Spalaccio agreed to spare his friend's life, but only if he told him who had pulled the trigger. The name Collada gave was Billy McCarthy, the man who had been beaten. Spalaccio tracked McCarthy down and asked him a simple question. Did he have an accomplice? But McCarthy wouldn't talk. Spalaccio wasn't phased. He'd dealt with people who were unwilling to talk before. First, Spalaccio tortured him with an ice pick. McCarthy still gave no name. Then Spalaccio stuck McCarthy's head in a vise and began to tighten it, slowly. Only then did Billy McCarthy finally give a name. Jimmy Maraglia. Known as the M&M Boys, the pair of McCarthy and Maraglia operated as a gang, and the two men they killed were rival burglars. But the park in which they were killed was an off-limits zone for murder. Many gangsters lived in the area. Satisfied with the information, Spalaccio killed McCarthy and went after Maraglia. A week later, the bodies of McCarthy and Maraglia were found in the trunk of an abandoned car. The FBI could find no evidence of what had happened, and no witnesses came forward in what became known as the M&M murders. From that point on, Spalaccio continued to do dirty work for the outfit for several years, and in 1971, the Chicago bosses rewarded Spalaccio for his loyalty and skill by sending him to do a different job for them in Las Vegas. The desert paradise started by mobster Bugsy Siegel was in full swing at this time and was still the territory of the mob. Former FBI special agent Emmett Michaels. This little town out in the desert was making tons of money for the mob. Uh, they were doing whatever they wanted to do. Your major casinos were all run by organized crime. And uh, if you uh, cut the, uh, the head off, then the rest of the, uh, the snake is going to die. So you had to keep something going. It was a mob town. I mean, these, these buildings weren't built on uh, uh, winnings. They were built uh, on people coming here and losing money. For 25 years, America's gangsters had poured millions of dollars into building Las Vegas, money gotten on loan from the Teamsters Union Pension Fund. And it was worth every penny. Of course, they weren't interested in a good floor show. They were in the business for one thing and one thing only, money. The Chicago Mafia controlled some of the biggest hotel casinos in the city, the Dunes, the Tropicana, and their flagship, the Stardust. These casinos were owned and operated by Frank Lefty Rosenthal, a Mafia associate and childhood friend of Spalatro. But the vast gambling profits alone weren't enough to satisfy their greed. These shiny desert palaces actually hid their real purpose and contained the mob's most profitable and top-secret racket, the skim. 
Cash received at a casino from guests would be taken to a secure counting room, and the money would be recorded in an account book. But the mob-run casino skimmed money off the top before any bookkeeper or tax inspector even knew it existed. Crime author Thomas Repetto explains. Las Vegas was a cash cow for Chicago and for some other cities, but especially for Chicago. Well, there was a lot of money made in Las Vegas. Uh, you know, gambling joints make money. And they got, a, they got a, the money skimmed by their people and delivered to bosses in Chicago, Kansas City, Milwaukee. But Chicago got the, got the lion's share. It was nice. You sit in Chicago, you have nothing to do with Las Vegas, and somebody brings you a bag with $50,000 in it every month or so. Gambling casinos make money, particularly if the mob runs them. And Chicago had a big chunk of Las Vegas, and they, uh, they, got, they got money skimmed off the top from, uh, from the gambling. The Chicago bosses decided that Spilatro, with his brutal reputation, was just what they needed to protect their skim. The main problem was that the money counters were often tempted to skim the skim, palm a few dollars to line their own pockets. But not when Tony Spilatro was a looming threat. Former FBI Special Agent Emmett Michaels. Tony's uh, reputation at the time uh, was he was an enforcer. Uh, basically, uh, he uh, didn't have much of uh, control of the casinos. It, was, it wasn't, uh, that wasn't his job. He was, he was like an overseer, an enforcer. Uh, if he, there were certain things, a hit that needed to be done, someone to be brought into uh, and, and talked to, it was Tony's responsibility at the direction of his boss, Jackie Cerrone, uh, and those people back in Chicago. Someone that uh, they either wanted to, uh, who wasn't uh, a game player, uh, who uh, may have been doing things wrong, incorrectly, stealing, cheating. Uh, they were, he was brought in to uh, basically take care of that problem. Another problem was the fear that the hotel staff might blab about what they saw in the counting room. But Tony Spalatro's murderous reputation guaranteed their silence. And he was, he was much too rough for the job they gave him in Vegas. He sort of went at it as though he were running a dive in Chicago uh, you know, with, the, uh, with, the, with the black jacks and the guns and all that sort of thing and physical violence. You don't want to scare away the customers in a place like, in a place like Vegas. So uh, he, he was a bad choice. He was a bad choice. The Chicago mafioso made himself at home in Las Vegas. It was the perfect place for a street hustler. Kent Clifford, former commander of the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. Tony Spilatro, when he got to Las Vegas, found out there was no other family in here operating a street crime uh, organization. So he had a wide open city. He could do whatever he wanted. It was new territory. There was no other street gang in Las Vegas at the time. Tony had been in Chicago all of his life. He had to compete with other organized crime families. In Las Vegas, when he came out to Las Vegas, it was an open city. Nobody controlled it. 
every organized crime family could be here and they wouldn't fight. They would just let them exist. Well, nobody bothered with the street crime. So Tony, seeing it was a wide open city, came out here and decided he was going to control the street crime and set about doing that. Spilatro soon began loan sharking to the hotel workers, and he played by big city Chicago rules. Thomas Repetto. Chicago had a reputation even among the loan sharks. In most cities, the loan sharks would not hurt a man who didn't pay if they thought he was trying to repay them. They would try to help him because they wanted their money. In Chicago, miss one payment, baseball bat. Miss two payments, a bullet. They were known for that everywhere. In Chicago was rough. Uh, a lot of people were, were, were very rough in Chicago. Uh, and uh, so, you know, they had their own traditions, their own local traditions there. Because Spilatro had set up his own crime organization, he made his own rules and applied them whichever way they suited him best. Kent Clifford. And uh, any, uh, it didn't matter what the crime, if he seen an opportunity to make a buck, he would do it. So he violated every law we had, one way or another. And he didn't care. I mean, he was the boss, he thought. And he could get away with what he wanted to do. If he went over and put some bet on something, he wouldn't pay for the bet. And if he lost, he wouldn't pay it. If he won, he demanded they pay him back. Pay him what he had won. That's the kind of guy he was. He thought he ruled the roost. Spilatro also started a street robbery gang to pick pockets, mug tourists, and even burgle houses. Regular muggings and robberies became a fact of life in Las Vegas, but just as his new career as a Las Vegas street boss was taking off, the FBI had their chance to stop him in his tracks. In April 1973, Spilatro had to return to Chicago. He and his mentor, Sam DiStefano, were charged with the murder of a real estate agent. If found guilty, it would have meant life in prison. Spilatro, riding high on his success, refused to be put behind bars. Di Stefano had been exhibiting increasingly strange behavior, putting his own defense in danger. So he did what he had to. Regarding friendship in the outfit, uh, you know, it can only go so far, you know, and uh, one has to follow orders if one's uh, given orders to kill a friend. Um, no, I, friendship would have nothing to do with it in the long run. Former FBI special agent Dennis Arnoldi. I've had another guy from New York say, the worst thing about it is this guy puts his arm around you, kisses your cheek, you know, he's going to kill you, you know? Be careful of stuff like that. No, they, you know, friendship, uh, it doesn't exist. <laughs> These aren't nice people. De Stefano never made it to trial, but when it began on May 30th, 1973, Another old friend turned against Spilatro. Charles Chucky Cromaldi 
had been persuaded by the FBI to flip. The prosecuting attorney, James R. Meldrager, clearly remembers the defendant. Spilatro's uh, demeanor in the courtroom was uh, very businesslike, professional, didn't show emotion, very well-dressed, and uh, presented a quiet image if uh, you didn't know better. But that's not untypical. A person like Spilatro is used to court proceedings knows the jury watches the demeanor of the defendants, so uh, he, Spilatra would present himself in a very gentlemanly-like fashion. Don't judge Spilatra as you see him in the courtroom, hands folded, well-dressed, a smile on his face. See him as his victim saw him right before he died of a vicious, cold-blooded killer, and try to paint the picture of what he really is on the street as opposed to what a juror perceives in the courtroom. Cremaldi's eyewitness testimony of the murder shocked the jurors. Spilatro remained unmoved. Uh, when Chucky testified, uh, his testimony uh, involved grisly detail. He was shot, he was stabbed, he was kicked and beaten, he was threatened with castration, uh, pieces of his flesh were cut off. Uh, there was no sense of looking away, a remorse, uh, ghastliness at, at what was being said about uh, a crime that he, Spilatra, was alleged to be involved in. No emotion at all. It was almost like he was uh, an outsider listening to this for the first time. So he, he played the role very effectively. Grimaldi's detailed testimony was hard to defend against, but Spilatra came prepared. He had an alibi. Spilatro's brother, John, testified in court that at the time of the murder, they were shopping together in a furniture store. Even though ten years had passed, the furniture store employees also testified that they clearly remembered Tony. The defense even produced hard evidence. Receipt that they had from the store, now you would wonder why they would keep a receipt after ten years from a relatively insignificant incident. That was something that was argued. Uh, we knew the receipt, the testimony, the evidence presented by the defense was not credible or was not truthful because we knew that these men were involved in the murder at the time. But we could not break the alibi. We couldn't show it was recently fabricated. We couldn't show it was from uh, 10 years ago or, or uh, 10 years thereafter. The witnesses, we could not find uh, any inconsistencies in what they said. And we were helped by other agencies in law enforcement in trying to break the alibi, so to speak. And we just couldn't do it. I was relatively surprised, uh, crushed actually, with all the time and effort we had put into it. And that kept the uh, image, so to speak, that some of these individuals were untouchable. And uh, that, that was exasperating to a, to a prosecutor. Tony Spilatro was a free man, but the trial in Chicago would not be his last. By 1976, Tony Spilatro had expanded his operations in Las Vegas and opened a new jewelry store called The Gold Rush. He made it the center of his loan sharking, bookmaking, and jewelry fencing operations. He also hired his old childhood friend from Chicago, Frank Collotta. 
Colada's new job was to recruit experienced, skilled thieves from cities around the U.S. and establish a first-class burglary crew. They soon became known as the Hole in the Wall Gang, and they left their signature all over town. Police Commander Kent Clifford. The Hole in the Wall Gang got their name because they would punch holes in residential houses uh, to get away from the alarm on the front door. They would go around to individual uh, rich people's houses and burglarize their house by knocking a hole in the wall. Spilatro was able to run his outfit with little risk of prosecution. The few times the police or the FBI did get involved, they would often find there was a strange shortage of witnesses. These guys, one thing that they were able to do, I mean, it, you know, uh, I mean, I couldn't go out and threaten someone, oh, if you don't, if you, uh, if you don't assist me, I'm going to end up whacking you. Well, he was able to do that. I couldn't do that. And that's, uh, uh, I mean, when someone comes by your house and says, listen, uh, uh, you know, we know where your children go to school. Uh, we know what your children do. Uh, either you'll cooperate with us or uh, something could happen to your kids. Well, you being a concerned parent, uh, say, wait a minute, uh, you know, I, I better cooperate with this thing, and I better not cooperate with the, with the local law enforcement. And that's, the, thing, that's the, uh, the threats that they held over these people. Fear was one persuader, money another. Local politicians relied on casinos for campaign donations. And so many of these politicians were working to preserve the status quo, which included keeping the mobsters and their casinos in business. Las Vegas at that time was, uh, you know, basically run by, by organized crime. And everybody that was in any type of uh, position, whether it be a public, offic uh, public official, uh, law enforcement, I mean, these people realized uh, that their bread and butter uh, was keeping these casinos running. And who was running the casinos? It was organized crime. So they had this interest in keeping the thing alive. And, and you couldn't blame them because it was the lifeline of uh, Las Vegas. But as with everything else, the side effects that came along with these people um, was the things that we were looking at. Corruption was woven into the very fabric of Sin City. The one organization that might have fought Spilatro, the Las Vegas FBI, was just a small outpost with little power. They also faced oppositions on their own side of the law, the corruption of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. It was very frustrating, but, you know, there was always tainted officers that were willing to accept monies uh, from the mob uh, and it was no different than when, when we came here. It was a way of supplementing their income. They got perks out on the strip. They got uh, jackets, gold bracelets, uh, necklaces and rings and things like that to look the other way or uh, not look at all. The FBI had another good reason not to trust the Metro Police. 
they found that confidential information was often leaked to mobsters, making it even more difficult to operate effectively. When I came in 1977 uh, and, and started the investigation, we knew that uh, they were doing surveillances on FBI agents, taking pictures from across from the federal building. Uh, uh, we were putting together uh, several Metro officers who would meet with Tony uh, three, four times a week. Uh, plus, we were getting information from informants uh, that they were providing them uh, plans or investigate what was going on. Anything that we would give to Metro uh, would eventually get back to Tony and, and his people. So what we had to do, one of the things that we did, we, we established off-site surveillance uh, uh, places, which even Metro didn't know. Uh, we had to, uh, uh, in order to protect ourselves from being discovered, we established off-sites uh, and had to, had to always be uh, careful of counter-surveillance, whether it be by Metro or by Tony's people. In order to take on Spilatro, the FBI saw they would need to do it alone. And they would need more resources. This included surveillance, electronic bugs, and telephone wiretaps. FBI surveillance expert Emmett Michaels was one of the new agents sent to Las Vegas in 1977. As head of the technical surveillance squad, it was his job to target organized crime and find out what they were up to. It was a monumental challenge. Uh, they used to use places like the Fremont. Uh, they used to use places like the Stardust to conduct their meetings and to penetrate, to put in a bug where you actually physically had to go into a room where they met, uh, took a lot of planning. Had we gone in, tried to, to uh, enter the place at two o'clock or three o'clock in the, in the morning where they met, uh, it, would, it would have drawn some attentions. To catch the criminals, they had to act like a criminal, breaking and entering buildings at night. But the only thing they were looking to steal was information. Former FBI Special Agent Leo Flossie. It really requires a, uh, an FBI agent to become a burglar, a good burglar, to be able to enter a premises surreptitiously, plant a, a bug or a, a wiretap, uh, and then uh, be able to monitor that wiretap uh, and uh, obtain evidence to, of, of criminal activity. Uh, now it's, it's very simply stated in that fashion, but it requires a lot of work to make sure that you're not breaking and entering a location that's occupied. So you, you wind up watching a place for, for weeks, sometimes months, trying to develop the, the, a proper scenario uh, for uh, accomplishing uh, your goal. Whatever your target area is, you, you have to make sure that you uh, can place your microphone or your tap in a location that will be productive, that'll, that'll give you the conversations that you want. It was nearly impossible to operate after hours. Most casinos operated 24 hours a day. To place the bugs, the agents had to face their foes in broad daylight. The only way to go in was to go in uh, dressed as uh, maintenance people and uh, put the bug in while they were meeting, uh, like they were working in the room. Uh, that way it didn't draw any attention. So uh, after thinking about it for a while, we 
basically decided that the best way to do was to hit it straight on and go in there and, and pretend like we were doing some electronic work and put the bug in while they were meeting. The FBI also had to secretly penetrate Spalatro's headquarters at the Gold Rush. This was no easy task. FBI agents had to physically climb up the telephone poles and uh, do the connection. And while they were up there, one of them triggered the alarm. And the next thing you know, Metro uh, responded to a, a break-in. Had Metro looked up the pole, they were seeing four agents up there on a pole, uh, which they didn't do, so we lucked out. Eventually, Agent Michael's men succeeded in bugging the gold rush. Back at their own headquarters, they listened to the tapes, and what they heard made their blood run cold. Detective Sergeant Joe Blasco and Sergeant Phil Leone of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police were identifying FBI surveillance cars for Spilatro. They gave Spilatro and his crew the names of undercover agents, they even named informants. It was betrayal of the highest order. Blasco and Leone were ultimately fired and charged for their actions, but the cases against them were dropped. Still, the reputation of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department was left in tatters. But then in 1978, everything changed. Police Commander John McCarthy ran for sheriff on an anti-corruption ticket and won. Here's Kent Clifford. Las Vegas was changing. Part of the change was John McCarthy. People had got tired of the good old boy system, so they voted in John McCarthy. We started an evolution. John McCarthy took the politics out of the sheriff's office. We got an honest sheriff. That set the stage for good law enforcement in Las Vegas forever. Sheriff McCarthy completely reorganized the force, promoting a swath of committed young officers over the heads of the old guard. At just 33, Kent Clifford was promoted to the rank of commander and put in charge of the Metro Police Intelligence Bureau. When I first was announced in the newspaper, it was before Christmas, and I was taken over the 1st of January. I received 32 cases of liquor. It was in there, I looked at the sergeant and says, where did this come from? I said, oh, we get this every year. I said, well, you don't anymore. Get it out of here. I don't ever want to see it again. My ultimate goal was to restore the integrity into the police department. And I went in, met with all the detectives, and told them I was transferring everybody out of the Organized Crime Bureau. Completely cleaned it out. Every person in there left. Yes, I did it because it was tainted. It wasn't that they was all bad. They weren't. But it was the bureau itself was tainted. And the only way I could clean it up was to clear everybody out. So I did. With a new sheriff in town, Tony Spilatro's days as the Las Vegas enforcer were numbered. His business operations were about to come under intense scrutiny, and every move he made was going to be monitored. Law enforcement had declared war on him and his gang of thugs personally. They were determined to clean up Las Vegas once and for all.
In the next episode, the FBI would take no chances and called in the big guns. The legendary Joe Leblonsky. Well, my initial re uh, remark was, is this really part of the United States? <laughs> this, this had an entirely different uh, approach because uh, organized crime is what brought the gambling industry to Las Vegas. A new brigade of incorruptible officers worked tirelessly to get under the mobster's skin and force them into making mistakes. We had a sense that we was circling the wagons, that we were bringing it in. We knew we had Tony Spilato. It was just a matter of time. But even in the crosshairs, Spilato continued to evade justice until one of his closest allies turned on him marking the beginning of his demise. We got word that Tony Spilato had put a contract on him because he was suspect of becoming a witness, which uh, he wasn't. And so we had to tell him that, that it was a contract on him, at which time he decided to come along with us. Uh, and, and, and be debriefed and be a witness. If you tell a guy that there's a contract on him and he says, oh, they want to kill me? Okay, I'll cooperate. This has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Ben Hosley and Rachel Jacobs and Bettina Vasquez for World Media Rights. We had editing help from David Markowitz, with additional production from World Media Rights by Gerald Zabengua. David McNabb is the series' creative director, and the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Reagan and Stuart Last. Thanks to RX Bar, Indochino, and Lightstream for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And if you've got some time, give us a review.